couple of days ago, I talked to Janet McCalman and Emma Dawson about uh, some suggestions for a better society in a post-COVID world. And tonight, we revisit that theme by talking about the changing nature of community here in Australia. Of course, COVID has uh, brought communities together and pulled them apart. Andrew Lee was well into writing his latest book when the pandemic hit. It looks at the communities that have been lost over the past 40 or 50 years and the new ones that have been created. And in the light of the last six months, what the future of communities looks like for a post-COVID world. Andrew is the federal member for FENA in the ACT, author of several books, including the prequel to Thissy, which was called Disconnected, published back in 2010. The latest one he co-authored with Nick Terrell, and it's called Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. Andrew, welcome back. Real pleasure to be with you, Philip. Now, people have been feeling very isolated, and yet there has, of course, been solidarity in isolation. It's fascinating. Uh, we, uh, according to the surveys, are feeling uh, more anxious, uh, more alone, more nervous, uh, and yet there is this reported increase in the sense of solidarity. Uh, and you often see this around times of crisis. Uh, World War II, of course, produced the greatest generation, but bushfires have also traditionally brought rural communities together. Uh, there's evidence from uh, earthquake experiences that that can have a, uh, an impact of improving solidarity. I remember, uh, I remember when the uh, the hurricane hit Darwin too. That the same sort of uh, surge of of mutual concern. Exactly. Uh, but the question is whether that's lasting or temporary. Uh, so in the United States, September 11 uh, attacks produced uh, an immediate upsurge in trust in the government and in one another, uh, but that very quickly ebbed away, largely because George W. Bush's message to Americans wasn't shared sacrifice. Uh, it was to go out and spend. Uh, so if you don't ask much of people in times of crisis, uh, then they don't step up to create a different society. Uh, and I think our challenge now is to convert that outpouring of generosity through the local mutual aid groups, uh, the uh, Kindness Pandemic Facebook page that Catherine Barrett set up, uh, the Play for Lives movement that Craig Foster created, uh, take all of those things and use them to forge more of a society of we and less of a society of me. I seem to recall that during major crises there's a reduction in crime rates and certainly, oddly enough, I remember that during the uh, the bombing of London there was a, an evaporation of suicide. Yes, people uh, do feel that sense of shared purpose and certainly I hope that's the case when it comes to the suicide rate now. Uh, we've seen a, an uptick in the Australian suicide rate over the course of the last decade, uh, particularly for young people, uh, coinciding with a rise in smartphone use and social media, uh, which has led some people to, uh, to worry that the so-called iGen or backseat generation uh, has uh, uh, de is de developing a greater sense of stress and anxiety that accompanies uh, excessive device use. Let's, let's look at one of your examples, Bellingen. Talk about that. 
So Dillingen uh, set, set up a uh, local group in which they uh, asked people to be ready to help out. Uh, they, uh, they, uh, the local council auspiced it, uh, but it reached into a whole lot of the community networks. Uh, so they were using the local gr local groups uh, to be, re be ready to assist uh, if people needed it. Uh, and there was a, a sense in, in Belgium uh, that there was uh, people people were ready able to, uh, to, to, to step up, providing social supports and emotional supports, which, as you know, Philip, were uh, just as crucial in the time of COVID, uh, making sure that people had the toilet paper they needed, uh, had the uh, food they needed, and were able to stay safe during the time, time of COVID. Uh, it's a, a great example, but not a unique example. I mean, right across the country, uh, people did step up through COVID uh, to help their neighbours. Let's let's go back a decade to um, Disconnected, your previous book, and that reminded us that all sorts of community organisations were, were struggling, the Scouts, trade unions, even political parties. It, there's been a huge collapse in community, and it's, uh, it's really right across the board. Compared with the 1950s, the church-going rate has gone down by two-thirds. Compared with the 1980s, the union membership rate is also down by two-thirds. Australians have half as many friends as in the mid-1980s, and we know half as many of our neighbours as we did when the TV show Neighbours first aired in 1985. Now, there's a quarter as many community associations per person as we had in the late 1970s, and Australians are less likely to be active members of civic organisations, social organisations and political organisations. There's more people on the waiting list for the Melbourne Cricket Club than all the political party members combined in Australia. What an appalling Australia. thought, I must say. I can take no pleasure in that. Okay, let's look at the diminishing numbers who are members of political parties. They are, of course, or others are finding other ways of organising to express political beliefs, of course. Yes, there's been uh, some terrific local movements uh, which have, have worked, for example, to help deal with workers' rights. Uh, the Young Workers Centre has uh, uh, set up to, uh, to uh, run campaigns against uh, uh, sexual abuse, against rip-offs uh, in, in firms, particularly in the hospitality sector. Uh, Hospo Voice is a, a new union that uh, the United Workers Union has uh, set up, uh, which has a $9.99 monthly membership. Uh, and uh, you makes very heavy use of digital organising tools. Uh, deliberative democracy has been a, a real game changer, I think, in many communities in order to, uh, to give people uh, a say in major issues that goes beyond just opinion polling to a deep uh, conversation. I want, to, I want to focus on deliberative uh, democracy in just a minute, but let's uh, go back to other things that are observable. The marriage equality vote brought together a community, didn't it? And uh, it has to be said that some unions are having at least marginal success at, at getting younger members. Yes, that's right. And uh, the the work that's been done, I think, to try and organise around uh, uh, issues of sexism in the workplace has certainly been uh, very, uh, very effective in terms of mobilising uh, young workers uh, and in terms of letting them know their rights. You know, what are you expected to get for superannuation? Uh, what do you do if your boss isn't paying you enough? Uh, the Marriage Equality Campaign was a, ca a campaign that uh, uh, built steadily over the course of a decade uh, from people who were 
were not actively involved in party politics but were aware that they needed to build a, a shared coalition around an issue where there wasn't even complete agreement in the gay and lesbian community at the very beginning. Uh, but it steadily, it steadily built up. But, uh, but, no, but no area in human activity is monolithic. There are always factions, aren't there? Absolutely, absolutely. And the great success of marriage equality uh, is turning around popular opinion in a remarkably sh- uh, speedy period of time. You know, I've never seen social attitudes change so quickly, Philip, as they did on marriage equality, uh, but using a, a strong positive frame. There were plenty of reasons that uh, uh, people who wanted to, to marry, marry somebody they loved could have been angry that their law denied them that right, but the campaign was grounded in, in positivity and love. And that allowed them to build out all kinds of different coalitions around parents, uh, around different ethnic gr- ethnic groups, uh, and to, to take that big tent approach that was ultimately necessary to get the change. Okay, now it's time to talk about deliberative democracy. Explain to the listener and to the ancient broadcaster what that is. Deliberative democracy is the bringing together of uh, a representative group of people in a community to discuss a a major challenge. So that could be anything from the Republic to, in the case of the one I did recently in my electorate, uh, whether or not mitochondrial donation could be allowed. Uh, And that that group of people uh, doesn't simply get polled, but they have a conversation with one another. Uh, They might get uh, briefings from experts, often on both sides of the issues. Uh, They have a chance to to ask questions, uh, and then they, they, they come to a, uh, a view on it. Uh, that, obviously, there'll be differences. There won't be a, one, a monolithic view coming out of the deliberative democracy process, but it, re- it treats people like adults. It I, I, understand that, I understand that cities across Australia are using it or the processes of deliberative democracy with great success. Melbourne, Adelaide, Geraldton. Absolutely. And uh, indeed, the city of Canada Bay Council in Sydney's inner west uh, used a participatory budgeting process, which uh, uh, allowed residents to have a say in how the budget was spent. Uh, It wasn't just uh, uh, window dressing. Their uh, their mayor got a 9% swing afterwards. So uh, uh, voters responded well in the past to uh, participatory budgeting. But the the deliberations have to be genuine, otherwise the, the whole system would collapse, wouldn't it? Yes, that's right. Uh, and and often long-term issues work. So the City of Melbourne did it uh, uh, around plotting a, a 10-year trajectory for the city. Uh, others have used it for uh, uh, getting the laws on dog and cat ownership right or working <laughs> out bike, bike lane protocols. Questions where there's often pretty different views in the community, Philip, uh, and people want a chance to have their, have their say in a meaningful sense, not just to talk back to the decision maker, but to actually have a conversation with one another, which is fundamentally what politics about, is about. It's not a spectator sport. We're all on the field. Now... These days, of course, Madrid and Brazil are are dealing with horrendous problems with COVID, but I understand deliberative democracy projects have worked there in the past. Yes, uh, one of my my favourites is uh, is the uh, Brazilian city of Porto Alegre, uh, which hold has uh, district level committees that hold uh, plenary sessions. They identify the priorities of their area. They elect local delegates, and there's a, a city wide budgeting pro- forum where local residents can come in and vote. Uh, that's been running all the way since ni- 1989, uh, and about one in 12 adults plays a part in the process, which is a significantly higher share of the population engaged in, in politics than you see in most uh, most democracies. 
Now, you mentioned that you've um, actually run one of these forums. Before we go back to it, I'd like you to tell me who gets to participate and who doesn't. In our case, Philip, we wrote to everybody in the electorate. Uh, we figured that uh, the best best way was to open it right up. Uh, and it was a, a fairly niche issue. Mitochondrial donation is uh, a procedure that uh, allows uh, parents who have mitochondrial disease to have a biologically related child who doesn't carry mitochondrial disease. Uh, at the moment, the procedure is illegal. There'll be a, a conscience vote in the parliament uh, sometime before the end of the year. Uh, and, uh, and I wanted to have this process to inform my vote. Uh, so we got a, a couple of hundred people engaged. Uh, we had an online forum. We had a face-to-face -face forum, COVID safe, of course, uh, and great conversations. You know, people who knew far more about the science than me, who'd uh, had a particular ethical perspective, uh, people who had religious views one way or the other, uh, and all of that came together in a, in a conversation, uh, the likes of which I haven't had on an issue like this before. So I, I learned a lot. I think I'll do a better job of, of casting my contact vote at the end of the year as a result of that. Okay, you've mentioned uh, in dispatches church attendance, so let's look at that. Overall, it's dropped markedly, hasn't it? Even those who still claim a religion, we're down from 74% of Catholics attending Mass in the 50s to, what, 12%? Yes, uh, the major religions, uh, major Christian religions, have seen some of the uh, uh, biggest drops, uh, and yet there's these pockets. Well, that's of, because uh, they've been on, you know, they've been self-destructing, and particularly in the case of uh, the Roman Catholics. It's interesting, Philip. When you look at the trajectories, you'd be hard pressed to see the sex scandals in the trends. Uh, it seems as though the uh, the trends in in attendance have just been inexorably downward since the nineteen fifties. I, like you, would have expected that there would have been some uh, savage drop that you would have seen accompanying that. Uh, but there's just a, a long secular trend, you might say, uh, away from church attendance. The Pentecostal uh, churches are booming, though, aren't they? They are, and there's these. Uh, this movement of uh, what's called church planting. Uh, they uh, describe themselves as the church's uh, research and development division. Uh, one of the things that uh, they've done quite effectively is to think about the experience of new members. So rather than just putting anyone you like on the front door, they think quite actively about who's going to be the best greeters on the door, how to make sure that you're brought into uh, a local uh, Bible, Bible study group, they uh, think about follow-ups. They think about where you'll park. They think about how the church smells when 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 a new visitor walks in. Uh, so there's it's really interesting to uh, to spend some time uh, talking with some of these uh, the, the uh, church planters and Pentecostal churches about how they're bucking the trend. My my mob are also bucking the trend. Uh, atheists are on the march. Yes, this uh, Sunday Assembly movement and or the uh, uh, Alain de Breton, de Breton uh, uh, movement of uh, School of Life, uh, where people uh, of, who don't believe in a, in a higher power nonetheless get together on Sundays uh, to sing, sing songs and talk about what it is to live a good life. Uh, that's a, a model which, uh, which has been taking off in some parts. Uh, I think it's uh, it, it hasn't got quite the uh, the, the star power of uh, uh, the, the, some of the Pentecostal churches, but it's an alternative form of uh, of spirituality uh, without the religion, which is growing in in parts of Australia. As an atheist, I'm uh, reluctant to 
talk about the next part of your argument and or your observation that those involved in religious life are more likely to volunteer in community organisations, more likely to donate money to charity. Uh, I think the best way to think about this, Philip, is that uh, if you the, uh, a, a strong predictor of helping is being asked to help, and people who attend religious services are just very frequently asked to help. Uh, so that's why they're uh, ten percentage points more likely to volunteer in their communities uh, and more likely to volunteer in non-religious activities. Uh, they donate seven hundred dollars a year more to charity than uh, people who aren't religiously active. Uh, and about $150 of that is donations to secular causes. Uh, so uh, as uh, Robert Putnam put it in a, uh, a book called American Grace, uh, attending religious services just makes you a nicer version of yourself. I remember writing, when, well, I was the television critic for the Oz for decades, and uh, I remember writing at the time of uh, Neighbours that people were more familiar with their electronic neighbours than they were with the real neighbours over the paling fence. And you earlier in our chat confirmed that real friendships are dying off. It's startling. Uh, and Australians halving the number of, uh, of friendships they have. This was a survey that uh, had been conducted originally in 1985 and Nick Terrell and I had it uh, refielded in the uh, mid-2000s mid and then again in 2018. And every time we went back to the field, we found Australians uh, having fewer friends and knowing fewer neighbours. Uh, but there's even organisations set up to deal with that. Uh, Nick, Nick Maisie set up an organisation called Befriend in Western Australia, uh, which puts together movie nights and picnics, uh, regular gatherings where people can uh, meet, meet friends. Uh, there's a uh, telephone helpline called Friendline, uh, designed not for crisis support, Lifeline does that, uh, but for people who just need someone to chat to. And the Friendline volunteers are encouraged to share something of themselves. But on uh, the other hand, while... In 1984, we had on average about uh, nine people we called a friend and that's gone down to, to five. What about Facebook friends, for God's sake? Well, our Facebook friends have gone through the roof, but how many of them would come to your birthday party? Uh, the question with, uh, with Facebook is how we can ensure that we don't get sucked into this, uh, this bottomless uh, time sink. I mean, it really is the, uh, uh, the magic pudding of uh, media consumption uh, where you can eat and eat and eat uh, and, uh, and end up uh, consuming far too much. Uh, one person said it's like having a delicious soup poured over your head. Uh, but Facebook can be uh, can be valuable too. Uh, I mentioned before Catherine Barrett's kindness pandemic Facebook page, uh, which didn't just share wonderful stories of kindness during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, but also asked uh, asked something of its members, uh, such as volunteers to step in and help out with women whose antenatal classes have been cancelled. Tell me about the joinery in Adelaide. The joinery is a wonderful little uh, space which is created uh, for a whole lot of social entrepreneurs to come together. Uh, and it's one of the things that uh, Nick Terrell and I talk about in Reconnected uh, is the value of uh, organisations uh, working with one another. Uh, it's uh, central in, in, in Adelaide, so it's easily accessible for uh, clients and for uh, charities alike. Uh, it, brings to, it brings together uh, uh, overseas uh, aid, aid groups, uh, refugee support groups, environmental groups, uh, and there's space for someone to uh, uh, drop in and just volunteer. So uh, one of the characters we talk about is somebody who was formerly homeless uh, and is now the uh, odd jobs guy who 
who's just uh, available there to uh, to help out. Good social entrepreneurs have an open door policy. You know, like uh, Beck Scott, who operates Street, uh, yeah, social purpose cafe in Melbourne, uh, who wants to create not only opportunities for employment uh, for uh, people who've been long term uh, jobless, but also a space in which people who are vulnerable can uh, can drop in and, and feel as though they're not being judged. I must put in a good word for Matt and Officer Street Universities too, which is uh, doing very well in difficult times. Do you see a reconnected Australian community evolving over the, the next decade? I certainly hope so, Philip. I think it, it would be a much more fun place to live. Uh, after all, you know, when somebody is uh, uh, being uh, being eulogised, uh, the thing that we talk about is their friendships. We don't talk about their awards. We don't talk about their achievements. We talk about how they treated the people around them and, and the sort of friend that they were. Uh, a, a, a strong friendships help us through adversity. It's been said that having no friends is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And economies work better when we've got uh, uh, thicker networks of trust because people can do business on a handshake rather than having to write everything down, scared that they're going to be ripped off. Uh, I think having a stronger union membership rate would be good uh, good for Australia uh, and would allow more uh, productive workplaces as workers' ideas were channeled into uh, making firms operate more effectively. Andrew, I think your uh, enthusiasm is as infectious as COVID. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. The voice of Andrew Lee, the very animated voice of Andrew Lee. He's federal member for Fenner and author of Reconnected, a community builder's handbook published by Black Ink. Good on you, Andrew. Thank you, Philip. An honour and a pleasure.